Thank you, choir. What a beautiful testimony that God has been faithful, so faithful to me. The personal testimony that we bear witness to of the work of Christ in our lives is a powerful resource that can change lives and change the world, as we're going to see in our text for today in John chapter 4. Thank you, Mark, for putting together a beautiful service so far, a wonderful morning of worship already. Mark texted me and Nathan Burbank and said, how is, how is faithfulness on Wednesday night? Mark's been out of the country, and I've been uh, on vacation. I, I got a little sun, a little too much sun, but also picked up a respiratory infection. I'm, I should be over it now. I, I've got three rounds of antibiotics in me, so I'm not contagious, so don't panic. Uh, we'll pray my voice holds up today, and I can get through the, the sermon. I told Mark I'm singing bass today. But uh, he texted and said, how was faithfulness? And Nathan said, it was a little rough, uh, but that was incredible. That was beautiful and, and, and polished and excellent and sounded like you meant it. Sounded like you really believed it when you were singing it. So thank you, choir. And uh, it's wonderful to have Pat Malloy, Birthlot, with us again today. Pat was the pianist here, uh, I guess, before Lauren Moody. Is that right? She was the organist. That's right. For many, how long were you organist here? 30 years, that's amazing. 30 years she was organist here. Yeah. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you with us. Um, it's been a great week of, a great morning of worship already. Last week, uh, what a wonderful morning of worship it was as well. Uh, thank you to Jason Early and the, the praise band for, for leading us in, in worship. I got to watch Trey's message. What an incredible, gifted, Preacher Trey is uh, and, and is getting better each time he preaches. Uh, I'm so thankful for uh, another staff member who has the ability, the God-given gift of being able to exposit scripture and bring a word of truth to us, uh, especially in my absence. So thank you, Trey. He took on a tough text, the texts of the woman at the well. The woman at the well is a cross-cultural encounter between our Lord Jesus Christ and this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in the middle of the day. I've been watching uh, the, the movie, The Gospel of John. It's, it's free on Amazon Prime right now. And because my voice is, is bad and because I want you to see the visual, uh, we're going to show the text this morning. Instead of having you stand and me read it, I'm going to show it to you today as you enter into the text and imagine what it may have been like for Jesus and the apostles to encounter this woman at the well in Samaria. So take a, a look at this clip, and then we'll, we'll continue. A Samaritan woman came to draw some water. Give me a drink of water. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan. So how can you ask me for a drink? Jews will not use the same cups and bowls that Samaritans use. If you only knew what God gives, and who it is that is asking you for a drink, you would ask him. And he would give you a life-giving water. Sir, you don't have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where would you get that life-giving water? It was our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well. He and his children and his flocks all drank from it. You don't claim to be greater than Jacob, do you? Those who drink this water will get thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring, which will provide them with life-giving water and give them eternal life. Sir, give me that water. Then I will never be thirsty again. 
Nor will I have to come here to draw water. Go and call your husband and come back. I don't have a husband. You are right when you say you don't have a husband. You've been married to five men and the man you live with now is not really your husband. You have told me the truth. I see you are a prophet, sir. My Samaritan ancestors worshipped God on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship God. Believe me, woman. The time will come when people will not worship the Father either on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans do not really know whom you worship. But we Jews know whom we worship because it is from the Jews that salvation comes. But the time is coming. And is already here. When by the power of God's spirit, people will worship the Father as he really is. Offering him the true worship that he wants. God is spirit. And only by the power of his spirit can people worship him as he really is. I know that the Messiah will come. And when he comes, he will tell us everything. I am he. I who am talking with you. At that moment, Jesus' disciples returned, and they were greatly surprised to find him talking with a woman. But none of them said to her, What do you want? Or asked him, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the town. who told me everything I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? So they left the town and went to Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples were begging Jesus, Teacher, have something to eat. But he answered, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. So the disciples started asking among themselves, Could somebody have brought him food? My food is to obey the will of the one who sent me and to finish the work he gave me to do. You have a saying. Four more months and then the harvest. But I tell you, take a good look at the fields. The crops are now ripe and ready to be harvested. The one who reaps the harvest is being paid and gathers the crops for eternal life. So the one who plants and the one who reaps will be glad together. For the saying is true. Someone plants, someone else reaps. I have sent you to reap the harvest in a field where you did not work. Others work there and you profit from their work. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they begged him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his message. And they told the woman, we believe now not because of what you said, but because we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he really is the savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a word for word. It's from the Good News Bible, uh, of a, a visual representation of the word of God. We don't know exactly what it was like, and of course the guy that plays Jesus, you may recognize from the TV series Lost, but 
it's, a, it's a wonderful visual reminder of these humble villagers pouring out of the village of Sychar and coming to Christ. It's a reminder of what this passage is all about, the harvest. It's about mission. It's about spreading the gospel so that those who are in darkness can see a great light and find the hope and the freedom that is found in Christ alone. That image of all these people coming to, to Christ is appropriate on today because today is St. Patrick's Day. You know, St. Patrick was, it's not just about green beer or green rivers or whatever you want to talk about with St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick was actually one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. We know from history, there's, there's a lot of folklore and fiction about him, but we do know the facts that Patrick was born in, in Britain in the, the late 300s, and he was kidnapped. He was taken by Irish invaders, barbarians who, who were pagans, who came in and captured him and some of his friends and took them to Ireland to be slaves. And he lived in Ireland for six years as a slave, serving Druid pagan masters. And he learned the language, he learned the customs, he learned the, the religion of the Irish people, and he eventually escaped and fled back to Britain. And, and, and while he was in captivity, he had a come to Jesus moment where he was reminded of the gospel that he learned as a young boy in his family's uh, household, but he had kind of rejected until he, all he had was Jesus. And, and he, he committed his life to Christ. And, and after returning to England, the, the, the Lord came to him in a vision and said, return to the Emerald Isle and, and share the good news with these barbarian people. And so he went back to, to Ireland and his efforts yielded extraordinary results. The, the, the whole island of Ireland soon became a strong Christian nation as the gospel spread like fire throughout the whole nation. And soon Ireland would send missionaries to Europe and all over the world. And I love the prayer that's attributed to St. Patrick, the prayer of protection known as St. Patrick's breastplate. Part of it says, Christ be with me. My Lord is with me all the time. Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Jesus had a mission too, just like Patrick. In Luke 19.10, we see Jesus' self-proclaimed mission the Son of Man has come to, what, seek and save the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And, and, and the Son of Man didn't come just to seek the lost sheep of Israel. He came to seek the lost sheep of the entire world. And so John 4 is such an important passage of Scripture for exploding the boundaries of what was perceived to be the people of God. It's now beyond the Jewish people so that it now includes every nation, tribe, and tongue. Some people hear John 3.16 and they hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever 
believes in him would have eternal life and not perish, they hear that and they say, yeah, sure, I believe that, but not, not, not that person. Sure, whoever believes in Jesus can be saved, but, but not them. Many Jewish hearers would have heard whoever, as, as anyone who is Jewish, male, and morally upright. The woman at the well is none of these things. And yet our Lord, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, crosses over the, the gulf of cultural barriers in order to give her the living water of eternal life. You see, for Jesus, the spiritual needs overruled the cultural differences. Trey did a great job last week of setting up this whole passage in, in the context of Samaria, and he gave us four filters that we're tempted to look at this woman through and the first filter was, the, she's the wrong race. She's a Samaritan. The Samaritans were, were half-bloods. They were not pure. They, they had blended syncretism with Judaism. They were idolaters. Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. They were constantly at war. There was violence between them. As, as Trey said, the Samaritans were the, the product of intermarriage between the, the Assyrians and, and the Jews and they had only had the Torah in their language, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the law. They didn't have the writings and the prophets that the Jews had. And since the Jews wouldn't let them worship in Jerusalem, they said, fine, we'll build our own temple. And they built a temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. And they said, this is where we worship now. And the Jews couldn't stand that, so they came and destroyed it in 128 B.C., in one of their violent conflicts. The Samaritans were the wrong race. The second filter that Trey mentioned was the filter of religion. This woman was not of the right religious group. Like I said, the Samaritans were, were basically pagans, worse than pagans, because they took the pure religion of the Jews and they blended it with idol worship that was so popular in that region. So compare this Samaritan woman to Nicodemus. Remember in John 3, Nicodemus was representative of the most excellent Jew. He was a male. He was a Jewish scholar. He was a member of the, the ruling class of all Jews. He was one of the most powerful Jews in all of Israel as a member of the Sanhedrin. He was an expert on the scriptures. He knew his doctrine. He knew all the rabbinical Talmudic teachings he was powerful and educated, everything that this woman is not. Which brings us to the third chasm that Jesus crossed over, the chasm of gender. Jesus lived in a patriarchal society, one where women were relegated to second-class citizens at best. His disciples were shocked when they saw him. They, they came up on him as he was talking to a woman. It wasn't that, that he was talking to a Samaritan, it was that he was talking to a woman. Even the woman herself says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then finally, in today's text, we see the gulf that, that Trey mentioned of morality. This is not a moral person that Jesus is talking to. This is a woman who has looked to various men throughout her life to define her to give her a sense of meaning and, and security 
and, and, and purpose for her life. She has run to these various men in an effort to give her satisfaction and fulfillment, and each one has left her more and more empty. She has a past, like we all do. She has a past. She has baggage that she has accumulated over the years of sinful living, and that sin has led to great suffering. Most scholars say the reason that she comes to the well during the, the sixth hour, which is high noon, that the, the hottest part of the day is, is to avoid the judgmental stares and glances from the other women who would have come to draw water in the morning or the evening, which was the typical time to get water. But this is what the mission of God does. It crosses all the great divides of race, of religion, of class, of morality, of gender, so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life instead. Charles Spurgeon said of John 3.16, many have found room in whoever who would have felt themselves shut out by a narrower word. The gospel is for all people. And it transcends all of these chasms because Christianity is a religion based on grace. It's not at all about anything that we are or anything that we've done. It's all about what he's done for us. Tim Keller says, if Christianity is a matter of grace, then when you come to church, you should leave something at the door. Out there, what matters is class, race, gender, moral performance. Leave all that at the door. I love that. God's grace is offered to us solely on the basis of who God is, on whom he is, not how we receive it or, or what the doctrine is, but on whom he is and his love for us that we don't deserve. Leave all that at the door. And this woman is, is so typical of, of many people in our society still. Nashville is not that different than Sychar, is it? Because she's just trying to get by. She's just trying to survive each day. She just wants to find some meaning, some satisfaction in her life that can get her through the day. Through men or whatever means, she's looking for something. And she's focused on the material world around her in order to give that to her. She thinks that if she, if she can just meet her physical needs, that life will be easy and she can get by. She doesn't seem to be a particularly spiritual person. She's not exactly concerned about the welfare of her soul. So Jesus gently points out her ignorance of the spiritual reality around her in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She doesn't get it. If she knew who he was, she would be asking him for a drink. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know what he has to offer, and she doesn't know how to receive it. 
So when Jesus mentions living water, she only hears running water, like a stream or a, a river or a spring or something. But the, the, the source of water that she was dependent on was Jacob's well there in Sychar. So she starts pushing back against him what he's offering in, in verse 11. The woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You know, Jacob's well is still in operation today. It's, it's in a, Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox monastery in the, the town of Nablus in the West Bank. Anybody been there? Ed, did y'all go there when y'all were in Israel? It's, it's in a, a tough place to get to now because of Palestinian occupation there. But the woman is concerned with how Jesus could obtain this living water. She was, instead of asking him, can I have some of that? Will you give me a drink of it? She's cynical. She doesn't believe him. She's jaded. I can get that way easily in our society. She's skeptical of his ability to give her living water. So Jesus tries to show her that he's talking about spiritual matters that are of more importance and even a greater reality than the physical reality of Jacob's well. Look at verse 13. He says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's saying that he offers miraculous water that buries itself deep inside a dry and dusty soul that springs up with waters of eternal life that never run dry. The living water that Jesus offers us is transformation, the transforming life and the power that God alone gives in and through the gospel of his son that leads to eternal life that satisfies as nothing else can. But again, she doesn't get it. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She would love to have her own spring. Maybe it's a secret stream somewhere that only Jesus knows about where she can go and, and get water without having to come to the well and encounter the judgmental stares of the women of Sychar. And I wonder if Jesus was thinking about Jeremiah 2, verse 13, when he mentions this living water. The prophet Jeremiah records God as saying, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. People have always rejected the living water, the overflowing springs of God's grace, and have instead chosen to make their own leaky pots that can never hold enough water to satisfy what we really need. Jesus knew that if he did not reach this woman, she would continue to go through life depending on her own leaky cisterns, her own broken pots, and would make a mess of her life, searching in vain 
for something to fulfill her. She has a real thirst for satisfaction that she's yet to find a way to quench. And let's not judge her too harshly, okay? The, the point is that we've all done this. We've all made cisterns for ourselves that we think will satisfy us, that we think can hold what we need. Why did so many parents spend $50,000, $100,000, $500,000, in one case, to get their kids into college? Why do they do that? Why would they risk breaking the law and, and spend so much money? Because they actually believe that if their snot-nosed kid can just get into the right school, maybe somehow obtain a certificate from USC or UCLA. Y'all didn't do that, Calvin, did you, to get your kids? Oh, yeah, okay. I think. <laughs> Georgetown, Stanford, if they could have a piece of paper from Yale, that that would get them through life, that that would make them successful. They're just building their own cisterns. They're just building their own pots for their kids, trying to give them a successful and satisfied life. These parents are delusional in more than one way, aren't they? So Jesus points out this woman's broken cistern in verse 16. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. That's the truth. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. A gentle response from our Lord. So the question for us then is, what is our broken cistern? Are we looking for satisfaction, for purpose, for meaning, for fulfillment in our career, in our physical appearance, our health, our social status? Are we trying to climb the ladder? Our bigger house, our, our better car, our acceptance, our getting into the right social networks, the right circles, the right colleges. Yikes. All those things will let us down in the end. I promise you that. Nothing that is man-made will last. So confronted with her sin, with her broken cistern, with her empty search, the, the woman brings up a question about proper worship. Look at verse seven, uh, 19. The woman says to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's like she's saying, you're right. I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm broken. I, I need to get right with the Lord. I need to bring a sacrifice in order, a, a sin offering. Where do I bring it? Do I go to Mount Gerizim or do I go to Jerusalem? How do I get right with the Lord? And, and Jesus, again, she's asking the where of worship or, or the, the if of worship, like I know whom I have believed Ask those questions. I know not where. I know not how. All those things. But Jesus answers her and says that the whom of worship is so much more important. That was a great, I can't believe you said that. That, that was my point in my sermon. Look at verse 21. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
He's saying that the where, the place of worship is now irrelevant. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. The Samaritans have been blinded by idolatry. They didn't know Yahweh, the true God. The Jews at least knew Yahweh. And salvation was from the Jews because Jesus was Jewish from the tribe of Judah. But even the sacrifices made on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem were only a shadow of the pure worship that was to be ushered in by the Messiah who would bring a perfect sacrifice and make worship possible in spirit and in truth. His atoning sacrifice was more than a physical, worldly offering. It was a spiritual one, which is so much more powerful than any worldly offering. Look at verse 23. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. I can spend a whole sermon on on just that one verse, but let me try to do a couple minutes. Worship is why we are here, not just in this church, but on this planet. As divine image bearers, we have a purpose. We were created to proclaim the greatness of our God in the midst of a dark world, a sin-sick world. The great theologian Karl Barth said, Christian worship is the most momentous, most urgent, most glorious action that can take place in human life. Worship is the, the highest function of our souls, but it has to be done in spirit and in truth. Are you a spiritual person? Do you love to worship God from the depths of your soul? When we sing, I know whom I have believed, were you moved by that? Were you saying that from your heart? When you sing with the saints in here on Sundays, Are you moved in your spirit? I sit over here usually. I want to move around some. I don't like the idea of having my own pew, you know, but I I love to to, to watch Calvin sing. He gets fired up and he just starts clapping his hands and he just gets into the song and just starts singing with such passion because he's worshiping in spirit. Do you worship in spirit? Does your emotions Do your passions get engaged when you worship? What about truth? Do we worship God in truth? Do we worship him according to what we know is true about him? In John 17, 17, we'll get there like in October. (laughs) When Jesus prays for his disciples, he asks God the Father to sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. True worship must be biblical. Scripture should inform our worship. It should shape our worship. Kent Hughes says that we should engage our minds in worship according to God's word. We should ponder who God truly is, what his word 
says about him. And when this happens, God is worshiped in truth. Idolatrous hearts are purged. Moral lives are elevated. And God is pleased. We need both spirit and truth, heart and head to be engaged in order to properly worship God. John Piper says, strong affections for God rooted in the truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. God is looking for worshipers like this. Why? Because he has a mission. This is all about mission. And his mission involves filling this dark world with light. And we, we push against the darkness by proclaiming the greatness of the beauty of the light of God, especially in the face of Jesus Christ. Hearing about spiritual and true worship gets the Samaritan's woman's hopes up. She wonders, could this be the Messiah? Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, the anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She figured it out, and her life will never be the same again. In this moment, she moves from death to life, eternal. So the woman left her water jar, I think that's important, she left her broken cistern and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ, the anointed one? They went out of the town and, and were coming to him. She invites the people of Sychar to come and see, just like Philip tells Nathaniel back in John chapter one, come and see for yourself. Come and examine this person, Jesus Christ. Don't take my word for it. Come and experience the life-changing grace that he freely offers. But Jesus' disciples are still concerned about worldly things too, like eating, like physical sustenance. Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What's the will of the Father? What's he trying to do? We just said in verse 23, look at verse 23, he's seeking worshipers, true worshipers for himself. That's what Jesus was doing too. He's fulfilling the mission of God to see worship increase where there formerly was no worship, to make others glad in God as they come to saving knowledge of him by grace through faith. Look at verse 35. Jesus says to them, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I love in the movie when he says this, look, I tell you the harvest is here. The people start coming. The villagers are coming. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Look at these people, these Samaritans. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. 
For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you've entered into their labor. This harvest that God is preparing doesn't take four months to germinate and to bear fruit. It's happening now, right before their very eyes. The woman at the well was saved right then and there. Do we understand the mission of God as the harvest around us? There are lost people whom we encounter every day. Somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000 cars drive by our church every day. How many of them are lost and searching? A lot of them. Are we playing our part in the harvest work? I love what happens next. The woman at the well is part of the harvest. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, not the Jews of the world. Tony Evans, great preacher in Dallas, Texas, said that this became a cross-cultural practicum for Jesus' disciples. When I was at Beeson uh, Divinity School at Sanford, we had to do a two-week cross-cultural immersion, uh, a ministry practicum, where you had to, to do a, 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 a mission project for two weeks in a setting that was different from where you grew up. So I got to spend two weeks in Hell's Kitchen, New York, at 40th and 9th uh, at uh, Metro Baptist Church, taking kids from the projects around Hell's Kitchen on weekday uh, camps. And we took them to the uh, Museum of Natural History and to the, the harbor and, and to um, all these different parks around Hell's Kitchen. It was an amazing experience. I'll never forget it. And neither would the disciples after spending two days in Samaria. Tony Evans says they had a two-day trip to the hood. So the application for us is simple. Will we let the spiritual needs of those around us overrule the cultural, social differences. There's a lot of tension in our world today. Bob referenced it in his prayer. Anyone who's been to Israel can tell you about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We know that there's a lot of Islamophobia and misunderstanding around Islam. We read about conflict still in, in urban neighborhoods between police and, and the African-American community. Do you know how much North Koreans hate South Koreans and vice versa? Have you ever been at an awkward dinner conversation where both a conservative, hardcore Republican and a liberal Democrat are both present? <laughs> I have. Tensions abound because of prejudice, fear, ignorance, like Bob prayed about. Maybe Jesus sent the disciples to go buy groceries because he knew they were too racist to be present when he was witnessing to this woman. Would he send us away? We need to remember that our God is so much bigger than Nashville. He's bigger than the South. He's bigger than Baptist. He's bigger than 
America. He's bigger than Jerusalem. He's bigger than our world even. He created it and holds it in the palm of his hand. He is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Are you one of them? Are you engaging God with your head and your heart? If so, then let's get busy with the harvest that is before us, all around us, regardless of the cultural differences. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful example of the explosion of the boundaries around us. That you have called us to play our part in the harvest of every nation, tribe, and tongue, regardless of race, religion, social class, geographic barriers, gender differences, and morality. God, I pray that you would forgive us for our our biases, for our judgmental ways, even the ones we're not aware of. I pray that you would give us a heart that is burdened for the lost, that we would play our part willfully and joyfully in your mission as we see the gospel penetrate the darkness around us. I pray that you would make us bold. You would give us the kind of fervent passion for reaching the lost that Jesus displays here, the kind of passion that crosses the gulfs of societal barriers. Lord God, we love you. We pray all this in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation now. If you want to come and pray at the altar, if you just have something on your heart you want to pray about, you're welcome to come. Trey, I'll ask you to come. Jan, I'll ask you to come too. If you want to pray with Jan or Trey, you're more than welcome to pray with them, share what's on your heart, have them pray for you, pray over you. Maybe you want to pray for healing. Maybe you have a a prayer need that you just want some prayer with. You can pray with me, too. I'll be here uh, as well. Maybe you're ready to join the church. You're ready to be a part of what God's doing here and say, I'm in. I want to be a member of Woodmont Baptist Church. God is moving here. It's been just overwhelming and humbling to see how the Lord is moving among us in this church. Maybe you've never been baptized, and you say, the Lord's calling me to follow Jesus' example of obedience and be baptized in believers' baptism by immersion. If that's you, I'd love to talk with you about it today. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to Christ and accepted the free gift of salvation that he offers by grace through faith in him. If that's you today, there's no better time to do that than right now. Whatever it is that you need to do, let's stand and sing, take my life, a hymn of surrender. Lead me, Lord. Let's sing together.